in this passage, as we've been journeying with Israel from Egypt toward the promised land, we've now come to this part where Moses is reunited with his family and he gets some important advice about how he is going to lead this people. And we're gonna see fundamentally two things in this text this morning. We're gonna see a model of gospel witness as Moses proclaims the gospel to his father-in-law. And then we are going to see a model of shared ministry and the importance of doing ministry together. And we're gonna apply that to us in the church. And here's the main point. We should declare the saving works of God and share in ministry together for his glory. We should declare the saving works of God and share in ministry together for his glory. So with that in mind, church, why don't we start with a word of prayer and we'll jump into the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its truth in our lives. And I ask, oh Lord, that now as we begin to study your word together, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what you would have to teach us today for your glory. Lord, give us a vision and a heart together to serve, that we would use the talents and abilities that you have given us so that we could bless this church body for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, Exodus chapter 18, let's read this together. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, in coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law, before God. So let's take a look at this text together. You know, it's interesting. This is kind of an awkward family reunion. Uh, Let's recap the story a little bit so I can explain what I mean by that. So if you remember back to chapter two of Exodus, we studied that a couple of years ago when Moses leaves, he has to flee Egypt actually because he murdered an Egyptian. He flees and he goes into the land of Midian and there he gets married to a woman named Zipporah and he's there for 40 years as a shepherd. But then there's this burning bush. You guys know the story. He gets sent back to Egypt. There's some weird stuff that happens in chapter four that we're not really sure what to do with about how his kid's not circumcised 
God tries to kill him. You study that on your own. We're not getting into that today. And then it, what happens is Zipporah and the kids end up going back to Midian while Moses goes to Egypt to fulfill God's calling for his life, to lead the people out of Egypt. And now, at least several months later, we don't know exactly how long. We don't know how long the plagues took, all of that good stuff. At least several months later, they're heading back towards Sinai and Jethro hears about it. And he says, I'm coming and I'm bringing your wife and kids. Now, here's why I call this an awkward family reunion. They haven't seen his wife or his kids in a long time. And guess who Moses is excited to see? His father-in-law. Now, listen, my father-in-law's great. You know, his name is Bill. He's a great guy. But if I were Moses... I might be a little bit more excited about seeing my wife and kids. I almost get this image of Zipporah being like, uh, hey, Moses, I'm here. I exist or whatever. But so they end up meeting. He runs out. He meets his father-in-law. He kisses him. Don't worry. It was a different culture. He greets him. And they have this whole family reunion. But I want to do a little bit more background even than this to show you some of the significance of this story. Jethro was a priest of Midian. All right, who cares? What's Midian? Well, let's do a little bit of background here. Genesis 25, we learned that Abraham had a son named Midian with a different wife. And him and his descendants grew into this sort of nomadic desert tribe, kind of parallel with the people of Israel. But what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, the Midianites were often depicted as enemies of Israel. So for example, Genesis chapter 37, it was Midianites who sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Fast forward a little bit in our own story, Numbers 25, it were Midianites who tempted Israel to idolatry. Going forward into the time of the judges with Gideon in Judges chapter six, again, it was Midianites who are oppressing the people of Israel. Why bring all of that up? Because what we have here is right after the Exodus, someone who is a leader among a people who were the enemies of Israel is now being saved as now coming to recognize that God is the true God. To use these terms, Jethro was not Jewish. So by definition, he was a Gentile. Yet even before the law, we see a Gentile coming and professing faith in the true God. This is the first fruits of God's promise to Abraham coming to fruition that through you, I'm going to bless all of the nations. It's the first sign that we have that the salvation plan that God is devising is not just for one nation, but for all nations. Even this early in history, Jethro is the first Gentile convert after the Exodus. So this story in the beginning is about how Jethro comes to know the true God and professes faith in him. And what we have here, I believe for us today is a model of evangelism a model of evangelism or gospel witness. Now, to be clear, there's some people who argue whether or not Jethro was saved before this point. Personally, I don't think he was. I think this is his conversion. One thing we know about the Midianites from Numbers 25 is that they were an idolatrous people and Jethro was a priest of the Midianites. I think upon hearing what God did in the Exodus, he made a profession of faith in the one true God. And so what we have here is a model of evangelism. Let's consider a few points related to that. First of all, in evangelism, we declare what God has done. We declare what God has done. Let's look at this story together a little more closely. 
Moses went out, verse seven, to meet his father-in-law. He bowed down and kissed him. They asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. In other words, he was kind and he was hospitable in order to win a hearing. He was kind and hospitable. We're gonna see in the second half of this story that Moses is two things. He's busy and he's important, right? He's important because he's the leader of 2 million people. He is a prophet of God. He's also very busy so that there's people waiting around all day just to talk to him. Yet he takes the time when he hears that his father-in-law is coming to go out and to meet him and to bring him into his tent and to talk with him. In the same way, the people that we are seeking to share the gospel with need to know how much we love them. They need to know how much we care about them. There's the old adage, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And that's true. We need to look for opportunities to love and to share Christ because here's the deal. Moses, as we said, he was busy and he was important and he's getting an unexpected visit from the in-laws. Is that how we react when we get the unexpected family visits? Let me tell you what happens in our house. So in our house, because we have these two little human tornadoes called toddlers, our house is usually pretty messy. And so when we get these unexpected visits, we're like, oh no, what are we gonna do? So it was actually about a month or so ago, my Nana and my aunt and uncle were gonna come by after church and Megan just like gives me this frantic look. He's like, we need to clean the house. We're like, all right, we're gonna get a five minute head start. We're gonna do like the fastest house cleaning ever. So we get there and we're just throwing stuff in the closet. We're running around frantically trying to clean the house before the family comes over. And guess what happens? As soon as Nana walks in the house, Hannah yells, Nana, we cleaned. <laughs> At least she's honest. Um, but Moses is excited to see his family. He's kind, he's hospitable. Sometimes the first step in evangelism is just being a good friend. It's just being a good neighbor. Sometimes we can obsess over, do I say the right words? Or do I know all the right facts? Do I have all the right answers? But maybe the first step is just being a good friend, just being a good neighbor. Then as we do that, verse eight, we declare the truth. We declare the truth. As they're in the tent, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done. Think about it, all that the Lord had done. So often our testimonies are me-centered. When I tell people my story, I'm either the hero or the victim of my own story. But with Moses, it's not about me. He didn't feel the need to say, hey, listen to all this cool stuff I did. Look at this cool staff that I had. Look at all of this. And instead it's, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done. It was God-centered. But notice also that the truth he declared was not sugarcoated. It says he told him about all the hardship that had come upon them in the way. I think he might've told them about the bricks, right? He might've told them about the grumbling and the complaining of the people. He might've told them of the disobedience of the people. He doesn't sugarcoat it. But nevertheless, it was focused on salvation, how the Lord had delivered them. Friends, it is our calling and privilege as Christians to declare what God has done for us because we have a much greater exodus, don't we? They were delivered out of slavery in Egypt, but we have been delivered through Jesus Christ out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death. A much worse Egypt than that. We have been saved. We have been redeemed from our sins through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead. We have the privilege and the calling to direct that, to bring that gospel to those in our lives. So let me encourage you. We did an evangelism series last fall. And at that time, I challenged you to think and pray about one person that you want to bring the gospel to. And let me ask, how's that going? 
Are you still thinking about that person? Are you still praying for that person? Are you still trying to have a conversation with that person? And you know, Easter's only a month away, right? That's a great opportunity to invite someone to church to come hear the gospel who maybe hasn't before. Pray about that. And then if I could even apply this story even further, especially if it's your family, because let's be real, those are the hardest ones to witness to. A lot of you in this room feel that sting of a parent or a child or a grandchild or a sibling that doesn't know Christ and your heart longs for them to know this truth. Let me encourage you, pray for them, love them and look for opportunities to declare what God has done for you. So what kind of response should we look for? What kind of response did Jethro have? It was a response of worship and fellowship. Let's see how Jethro responds. Verse nine, and Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. He rejoiced. The gospel, as we sing at Christmas, is glad tidings of great joy. It brings joy to know that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life. And while I'm really thankful for all that the Lord has done for me in the last nine years since I've been saved for the spiritual maturity and sanctification, I gotta tell you, I get nostalgic for when I was a new Christian sometimes. Anybody else? Sort of your spiritual honeymoon phase, you could say? Like, I get nostalgic for that joy, that innocence, that pure just excitement that I know Jesus and that I am forgiven. Man, there's something special about the joy that comes with receiving the gospel, and it should be. We should strive to perpetuate that in our lives. But it, he also made a profession of faith. He wasn't just happy to hear about the good news and then they moved on, but he made a profession of faith. Look at verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. In other words, he is affirming that what Moses said is true that he is the Lord and that he has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians. In verse 11, this is the key. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. This is his profession of faith. He's saying, now I know. Based on what has happened in history, based on the Lord's deliverance, I know that he is the one true God. And in the same way, we point to the event in history, the central event in history to show that God is the one true God, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. I've been asked before by an unbeliever, how do you know that your religion is true and other ones aren't? That's an easy question to answer, right? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus died and rose from the dead. That is the event in history that proves that this is true, that our God is the one true God that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. This is the content of our evangelism that we point people to. So Jethro makes this profession of faith. And at this point, Moses doesn't just shake his hand and go see you in heaven, but rather he comes now into the worship and the fellowship of the people of God. Notice verse 12, he offered sacrifices to the people he worshiped. And let me tell you guys, worship is the goal of evangelism. Worship is the goal of evangelism because God is worthy of being worshiped, right? We wanna bear witness to the gospel so that people will know God and so they will worship him, that they will worship him. But also fellowship. He goes and he has a meal with Moses and Aaron and with the elders of Israel. He is now fellowshipping with the people of God. And in the same way, those who make a profession of faith need the body of Christ, they need the worship and the fellowship of the church. So what do we learn from this passage? 
And we learn that we ought to pray and look for opportunities in our lives to declare what God has done. And then as we do that, we should call for a response, a joyful profession of faith and joining the body of Christ, joining the believers, because here's the deal. If we call on people to make a profession of faith, but we don't lead them to discipleship in the local church, all we're doing is creating spiritual orphans. And that's a dangerous thing. We need the fellowship of the body of Christ. So this point in the story, the family's all together. It's a heartwarming scene. Well, what's gonna happen next? Well, let's keep reading in Exodus chapter 18 and read about what's gonna happen on the next day. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you were doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you and you will be able to endure and all this people also will go with you to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own country. So after reading this story, our, our lead pastors meet every week to talk about the sermons. I do a little bit of team sermon prep. And I told the guys I was gonna call my sermon this week unsolicited career advice from the in-laws. And I decided to go with a different title, but that's pretty much what's going on here. His father-in-law came over for a visit. He stays the night. He follows him to work the next day, watches him and goes, hey, this ain't good. Moses, this is no good. You need to quit. And what's going on here? What is the content of his advice? Moses explains his unique role. He is the prophet that God has called to lead this people, to be the mediator for this people. And then Jethro says, I understand that. I understand what you've been called to do, but you're doing things that you don't need to do. You are doing too much. There are things that you're doing that other people could be doing. And if you don't learn to delegate, you're gonna wear yourself out. And this is not gonna work. So Moses was wise enough to listen to this advice. This is the first thing we learn here. Moses was wise enough to follow Proverbs eleven fourteen. It says, where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. So then Jethro goes back home. And here's what I think we learn in this story. We see here a model of shared ministry. 
a model of shared ministry. Back in Genesis chapter two, it says in the context of marriage that it is not good for man to be alone. And so I wanna tell you this morning that in the context of ministry, it is not good for us to do this alone. Ministry is meant to be a team thing, something that we do together. This is the lesson that Moses needed to learn. And I think this is a lesson that we need to continually remind ourselves of here at Coastal Church. And let me teach you three things that we see in this text about shared ministry. The first is that shared ministry is more effective. Shared ministry is more effective. I have always read this story as I've read it in my Bible reading as a story about burnout. And it is, and we're gonna get there in a few minutes. But I also want you to notice something. It's not just that Moses was gonna burn out, it's that it wasn't working, that this wasn't very effective, that Moses' governance was as efficient as the DMV, that people are coming and that they're waiting around all day and they're not being satisfied that there are these long lines. Because remember, the text says the people are standing around all day. They're not being cared for. Solo ministry isn't effective because there are always too many needs to meet for one person. There are always too many needs. By the way, when we get to the early church in the New Testament, we get a very similar advice. A very similar thing happens. This is why deacons were instituted in the first place in Acts chapter six. Notice the similarities here between Jethro's advice and the deacons being instituted in Acts six. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles had a Moses-like ministry, right? They were called to represent God to the people, to speak the word of God to them, and to represent the people to God through the ministry of prayer. And what they're noticing is there is too much going on here for us to handle it. So we are going to raise up leaders, deacons, servants who are able to do this ministry so that we can focus on what God has called us to do. Guys, this is why we have layers of leadership in our local church. This is why we have elders, multiple elders. Listen, if I wasn't biblically convinced that a church needs multiple elders, and I am, over the last year, I've become increasingly practically convinced because this is way too much for one person to do alone. We need one another in the body of Christ. We have elders, we have deacons. Even reading this text, we just instituted several more deacons. We have some incredible deacons who are our lead servants here at this campus. We have small group leaders. We're up to 15 small groups here at Coastal Gloucester. We have so many gifted and godly leaders in our small groups who are shepherding and caring for their people. We have lay ministry leaders. We have volunteers. We have so many people who give so much to this church. I can't and I shouldn't try to do everything myself. Not only would I burn out and quit, but it wouldn't be satisfying for you because one, I can't do everything. And two, I'm not good at a lot of things. Amen. Amen, somebody, right? We need each other in the body of Christ. And here's another reason for that. Not only the workload, also giftings. We are not all the same. We all have different gifts. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 says. 
Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. In other words, every member of the body is given a spiritual gift for the benefit of the whole body. All of us are given a spiritual gift and like the parable of the talents, God will hold us accountable for what we do with it, for how we use it to love and to serve the body of Christ. And let me tell you, if you call Coastal Church home, you have a spiritual gift that I believe God expects you to use here in this local church for his glory and for the good of this church. And our ministry will be made more effective by you using that gift. I believe that. So shared ministry is more effective, but what's the requirement? What do we need in order to do shared ministry? Shared ministry requires godly character. Godly character. When Jethro is telling him who to look out for, what are the qualifications? Does he say, all right, only accept applicants with a degree from these schools? Uh, does he say, check on their family pedigree, make sure they come from good stock. What's their last name? Does he say, make sure they have the look, you know, make sure they look good, make sure they look a certain way. Of course not. He tells them, make sure they're godly. Make sure they love God. Make sure they're people of integrity. Make sure they're people of character. Look at verse 21 with me. He says, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. Able men, that is those who are capable, those who are gifted for the task that they have been called to. Men who fear God, that is foundational for ministry, for serving, for leading, that we would fear God and not fear man, that our primary goal would be the glory of God, that he would be honored. Those who are trustworthy, that is they are people of integrity and honor, people whose word means something, people who are committed to being honest and hardworking. Similarly, people who hate a bribe, unless it's a donut on Volunteer Sunday, which don't forget to get one on your way out. We don't want leftovers. Uh, men who hate a bribe, that means they can't be bought, means they're impartial in their judgments and sincere. And I would like to add one to this list because I see it reflected in this story, humility. Why humility? Because there's only one Moses. God only called one Moses. And then some of them got to be captains of thousands, but others only 100. Others only 50, some only 10. And if you're the guy who only got 10, you have to have the humility to say, this is what God has called me to and I will do it with all my heart. I won't be bitter because I didn't get more. I won't be bitter because I didn't get more influence. I won't try to promote myself and build my own brand and try to build my own influence or my own kingdom, but I will be content with what God has given me and I will be faithful with all of my heart. It takes humility. In the same way, in the church, the primary thing that those who lead in the church need is godly character. This is what it says of an elder in 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, 
sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his own children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Do you see here that from the Old Testament to the New, the foundational requirement for those who lead and serve is being like Christ, is Christ-likeness. And let me tell you, one area where the church falls into trouble more than any other is when we elevate godliness, when we elevate giftedness over godliness. When we say that talent is more important than godliness, than character, that very thing is why we turn on the news and we hear about pastors who've had an affair or pastors have stolen money for the church or whatever else. We must be people who care more than anything else about godliness, about Christ-likeness. And it doesn't matter what your role is from pastor to small group leader, to deacon, to volunteer, all of us. Let's make sure that as we are serving the church, we are pursuing Christ. Not that we're perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all sinners. But that the direction of our life is toward godly character. Last point this morning, shared ministry prevents burnout. It prevents burnout. What Jethro says to Moses is, dude, you're gonna wear yourself out. And when you delegate, you will be able to endure. I hope you know that burnout is a massive problem in ministry, just massive. One Barna study that I read, 2021, showed that 38% of pastors were on the verge of quitting due to burnout. And we hear that and we're like, what are you talking about? Don't you guys only work for a couple hours on Sunday? <laughs> if only. Um, let me tell you, it is so easy to burn out in the church. It's so easy to burn out in the church, almost than any other field. And here's why, because we're working for God. <laughs> And it feels sinful to say no when we're working for God, right? It feels dirty or wrong to say, I can't serve. I have too much going on. It feels wrong to do that. But as we see with Moses, there will always be people with more needs. There's always going to be more people with more needs. And if we don't learn how to establish proper boundaries and share the load with others, we will eventually keep giving until there's nothing left. And that's not just true of pastors and church staff. This can also happen with volunteers. I have seen it happen. My heart is that at Coastal, we have enough volunteers so that no one will ever be in a position to burn out. Let me tell you, listen, Unless you want to, I don't want you to feel like you have to serve every single week. I don't. I want to have enough volunteers to where that's not necessary, that we can share the load, that we can share the ministry together. So how can we prevent this? What should we do? Well, first of all, it's important to understand that Moses didn't need to change his role. Jethro said, God has given you this assignment as God's prophet and as God's leader. You don't change your role. What you need to do is delegate the things that you don't need to do that other people can do. And how do we apply this today? Because we don't have any Moseses running around today, right? We don't have any prophets today because the ultimate prophet that Moses pointed to has already come. Jesus Christ is the true Moses. He is the ultimate prophet. And unlike Moses, Jesus never grows tired or weary. And because he is God, he is able to be the wonderful counselor to all who come to him 24-7. 
And so Jesus has stewarded ministry to us. And we apply the wisdom of this passage by delegating the work of the ministry throughout the body of Christ. Let's look at this one really important verse together. I know I'm running low on time, so we gotta be quick. Ephesians 4.11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Let me read that again. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Let me tell you guys, I am not a minister. You are. I am an administer. It is my job. It is the elder's job. It is our staff's job to equip you guys to be the ministers, to do the work of the ministry. The pastors and teachers equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. This is the great irony of biblical church ministry. It's my job to make sure you're doing my job. And if you're not doing my job, then I'm not doing my job. It's my job to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And the bottom line is that burnout could be easily avoided if we all shared the load, if we all jumped in, if we all used the gifts and talents that God has given us to serve in some capacity. About two weeks ago, I had coffee with one of our deacons, Mark Cockrum. He ain't in this service, so I can pick on him. I'll do it even worse in the next one. Mark told me as we were talking about volunteers, he said, if everyone in the church volunteered, no one would need to serve more than once a month. That was a pretty good guess. But I asked our first impressions team leader, I asked our children's ministry leader, and I asked our worship team leader. So our Sunday morning ministries, give me a rough number of how many volunteers that you need every Sunday in order to do a service. And it came to about 51. Last week, we had 321 people here. So the math was a little off. It's actually one in every six. Do you see what I'm going with this? If everyone here were to serve, no one would need to serve more than once every six weeks. Can't you see that if we would share the load, if we would all jump in, if we would all make a commitment to serve, burnout would never even be on the table. So let me leave us with a few takeaways this morning. First of all, let's declare the gospel. Let's follow this model that Moses left for us of gospel witness to share the gospel, to declare it with those who are in our circle of influence, all the great things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But next, let's honor our leaders. Let's honor our leaders. This passage has a lot to do with leadership and those that God has raised up to be leaders in Israel. And in the same way, we have some absolutely incredible leaders here at Coastal Gloucester. Man, if I wish I had the time to name them all by name, but I see many of you in this room and I'm so thankful for all of you and all the different ways that you lead in our church, for our elders and our deacons and our staff and our ministry leaders and our small group leaders. Thank you. And for the rest of us as church members, how can we honor our leaders? Just one verse, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. I love that. For that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, don't do your small group leader how these people did Moses. Please, on their behalf, none of that complaining or nothing. Let this be of joy to them to lead you because it's no advantage to you if it's not. Let's be good followers to the leaders that God has put in our lives. Finally, and with this, I'm gonna invite the prayer team and the worship team to come forward. Let's find ways to serve. Let's find ways to serve. 
as it's Volunteer Celebration Sunday. Man, if you are here and you're not serving and I've convinced you through this sermon of its importance and you're thinking, how can I get plugged in? There's so many different opportunities. We have our first impressions ministry, the parking, the ushers and greeters, coffee, security team. We have our music and production team, our singers and our instrumentalists. We have our sound team and our media team. We have our children's ministry, our check-in volunteers, our helpers, our teachers. We have our prayer team. We have our men's and women's ministry. We have our student ministry. We have our small group ministry. I could keep going, y'all. You can never say, I came to Coastal and they didn't have anything for me to do. There are so many opportunities for you to serve. And so the question is, how has God wired you? How has God gifted you? And how can you use that here at Coastal for his glory? If you wanna see all of our ministries, go coastal.org slash serve. You can go online, go coastal.org slash serve, or you can write it on your connect card. And one of our ministry leaders will be in touch with you this week to try to help you find an area of ministry where you can serve. And for our current volunteers, let me say it one more time. Thank you. We could not do this without you. We are so grateful for you. And even at Coastal Gloucester, as we're looking forward and we're driving behind Wawa and we're seeing the building and we're super excited, let me tell you guys, we're gonna need a lot more volunteers in that new building, a lot more. I see some people nodding their heads. So let's start now. Let's get involved. Let's use the gifts God has given us for his glory and for the good of this church. Amen. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your word. We thank you that it's true. And I pray, Father, that we would be motivated, encouraged, and challenged to use the gifts that you have given us to serve this church body. God, use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.